could, open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. We'll be in chapter 4, going over verses 35 through 41. Mark's Gospel, the fourth chapter, excuse me, verses 35 through 41. A very familiar passage that um, you and I uh, can remember of how Jesus stills the sea with one word. A great uh, passage of how we can come to the uh, concepts of the sovereignty of God. Let's go ahead and read together. Mark 4, 35-41. On that day, when evening came, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? My number one point for this morning that I want us to all remember is to not panic. Because Jesus is still in control. Don't panic because our Savior, he is not afraid and he does not panic. He is in control of all things. He's he's the master of, of all things. And when you and I face unexpected storms in our life, we can expect God to take care of it. When you and I face unexpected trials uh, individually in our lives, we can trust in God that he is in control. When you and I face unexpected circumstances as a church, we can still trust in God that he is in control. I remember a time when I was around eight or nine, and my dad, he would come from work, and he would immediately go to bed because he had massive migraines for a whole week. And around his birthday, they caught a picture of, of, uh, on his head that there was a little bump. And he went to go to the doctor, and it turns out it was a tumor. But by the grace of God, they were able to remove the tumor. And they, they had to place a, skull, uh, a plate on his skull because the tumor was eating at his skull. And they got to place the plate there and sew, and, uh, sew the skin back on. And, uh, or stitch, excuse me. So stitch the skin back on. And now he's fine. But through the midst of that, I don't remember really being too much afraid. And I don't want to sound arrogant. Because it's probably because I was too young to remember, and I was probably too young to even understand what was going on. But I do think that a big reason I didn't seem, I don't remember being too afraid at that point, was because I never saw my father afraid. I never saw my dad scared. On the inside, he probably was. He didn't know what was going to happen. But he never showed that to me. He never showed that to me or my brother. And you and I can take courage. When you and I are going to go through circumstances, we can trust in God because he's not afraid. Even when we are, we can still trust in God because he is in control of the situation. He's in control of our lives and even our destination. And this gets to my, uh, my first point. Our walk with Jesus can sometimes lead us into unpleasant situations. Our walk with Christ can lead us to do uh, things in ministry that are not always the pleasant thing. Because with ministry, you have to deal with people. You have to deal with people like me, okay? Sinners, okay? And that's, and that's tough. 
But Jesus came to save sinners. And sometimes um, it may not always be pleasant to deal with people or to even a specific situation that we have to um, minister to, but it's still needed because God commands us to go and minister and to love unto others and to serve others. Paul is a great example. God told Paul to go to Corinth. He don't want to go to Corinth, a bunch of people that are full of sexual immorality, a bunch of false teaching that was heading around. With good reason, he don't want to go to Corinth. But Corinth still needed God. And God told Paul to go to Corinth to minister to them anyway. Because God, uh, the, the Corinth needed God just as much as Paul needed God. And again, it's not what you and I, what we want to do for Christ. We may want to do something for God, but it's what God wants us to do for him. We may not want to do something for God, but if God tells us to do it anyway, we need to go and do it. Let's look at uh, verses 35 and 36. And it says, On that day when evening came, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. In verse 36, it says that there were boats and other boats with him. This is a, uh, and also within the context of the same chapter, it's not only the twelve, but also other followers of Jesus. And in verse 35, you see Jesus saying, let's go to the other side. On the other side that they're about to go over is Gentile territory. Jews probably don't want to go Gentile territory, and probably for good reason. Pagans, right? But the Gentiles need God just as much as the followers of Christ need God. And that's why, even though uh, the Jews, uh, these followers of Christ, they may not have wanted to want to go to Gentile territory. They didn't want to minister. They still needed to because Christ wanted to minister to them with his followers. He still wanted to serve them. He still wanted to um, serve them with his followers. You and I today, the world that you and I live in today, Every one of us needs Christ. The same uh, also because you and I still need Christ, even as Christians. You and I as Christians need Christ just as much as the world. And that's, and that's the point. Everyone needs Christ, and within ministry, that's why we serve. Because we all need Christ. This does get to my second point when we have faith in him. Our faith in Jesus will be tested during unexpected storms. It is easy for you and I to say that we follow Christ. It is easy to say that we have faith in him. But it's one thing to actually go through a storm and still have it. I love Tony Evans. Tony Evans is a, uh, a pastor at Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship. And uh, he makes a great point. I saw it on a video the other day. He says, everyone needs to know at least these two doctrines. The first one is the gospel. Everyone needs to have faith in Christ, have a relationship with him, be purchased, purchased, have their sins forgiven. And the second one is the sovereignty of God. Everyone needs to know that God is sovereign, because if you don't believe in a sovereign God, you base everything you do in life on luck, everything on chance. But you and I don't. We do serve a God who is sovereign. That's why nothing is by luck. Nothing passes through his fingers. Great message from Tony Evans. I bring that up because when you and I come with this story, 
either today or in other uh, times when we faced this story in the past, we've all probably maybe asked the question, who caused this storm? Was it God or was it demonic forces? Because in other passages of scripture, we've seen both of those situations play out. In Jonah, you see Yahweh was the one who caused the storm against Jonah in his disobedience. But also when they throw Jonah out of the boat, Yahweh is the one who calmed the storm. And then we get to other passages like Job, and we see that God gave permission to Satan to allow storms in Job's life because of his obedience to God. Well, when we get to this story, who caused the storm? That even though the text doesn't explicitly say God or Christ caused the storm or demonic forces caused the storm, because it also does not say that Jesus said, let's go to the other side where we will meet my storm, or let's go to the other side while we'll be attacked. It doesn't say that. However, I do think you and I can come to the conclusion with either way that God is sovereign, which we can trust in, but also within the previous uh, passage beforehand in the same context. Because the Gospels, they always share a flow of stories to convey a message. When there's a story here, it has a purpose, and one right next to it to convey a similar message. No story in a Gospel that are connected to each other are not there for no reason. They connect in some way. So I think if you and I go to the the previous passage, you and I can't come to the conclusion. Let's turn to the same chapter. Let's go to verses 3 through 20. I'll go ahead and read. Listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and other birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell along the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately sprang up, because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Verse 8. Other seeds fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. Let's skip to verse 13, please. Verse 13. And Jesus said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which, was, uh, which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, whom, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no firm root in them themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises... Because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word. Verse 19. But the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other things enter in and choke the word and becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones on whom seed has sown the good soil. They hear the word, accept it, and bear thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. We just see that Jesus... And before we get to this story, we see Jesus tell the parable of the sower and the seed. And then we get to verse 13 where Jesus explains the parable. Number one rule when we interpret a parable. If Jesus gives one and then he explains it, that's the meaning of the parable. 
There is no need to over-spiritualize what this means, what that means. If Jesus gives you a parable and he himself explains what it means, that is what it means. There's no need to over-symbolic anything, especially if he explains it. Now, he just said that when you sow a seed, sometimes the bird comes and snatches it away. In that same context, are birds a good thing? No, because he just said that Satan comes to take away the seed. He comes to take away the word. So in this context, we see that uh, Satan, or the birds, excuse me, are being described as Satan to take away the seed, to take away the word, so that no one can have faith in Christ. And now, get to verses 30 and 32. This does connect, so follow me. Verse 30 through 32 of the same chapter, verse 4. And Jesus said to them, How shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which then was sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil. Yet when it is sown, it grows up, becomes larger than all the garden plants, forms large branches, so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. The birds in the air... It is in the same context of, of the previous parable. In this situation, he just said, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. When it's sown in the good soil, it plants a tree, and large branches branch out to where birds decide to nest under its shade. And we remember that birds are not a good thing. In this context, when the kingdom of God is becoming fruitful, it attracts birds. And then... Within that, uh, we, what you and I can take from that is that the kingdom of God is going to be attacked, not overcome, but attacked and afflicted, but again, not overcome by Christ, not overcome by the kingdom of God. And so now, with that in mind, what is the very next story that we come across? It is the story of a afflicting storm on the disciples. And with that, I think we can make that connection that this storm, which is chaotic and afflicting, is to persecute the disciples to not have faith in Christ. The storm is to demonically oppress the followers so that they don't trust in him within his word. And other commentators within the Gospel of Mark um, would also say that this whole gospel was written for the purpose to encourage persecuted believers. I probably should just led with that, but I think that the context still matters. That the whole gospel still, uh, th this gospel was written for persecuted believers to take faith, to, uh, to take courage of their faith and why they believe in Christ. And the same commentators, such as uh, David Garland, who I also mentioned later, um, great scholar, he mentions how in this passage throughout all of church history, that they applied this story when the church is afflicted, when the church is persecuted, when chaos comes our way and we all go into panic. That's, that's what they applied this message with, that they always had faith in Christ because he could take care of the storm. Now, let's go back into Christ's word. Let's read verses 37 and 39 of chapter 4. There arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him, said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? 
And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and became perfectly calm. So in verse 37, you and I now see in the text that the water is rising to the brim of the boats to where they're starting to sink. But Jesus is still asleep, so the, so the water is at least his blanket at this point, and the water is not waking him up. It was the disciples who woke him up. Now again, within David Garland, makes a great point. This was a foreshadowing of irony in the future. Because when Jesus comes to the Garden of Gethsemane, what does he see the disciples doing? They're sleeping. And he said to them, why are you sleeping at such a critical hour as this? He's about to give his life. He's about to be betrayed. And they were sleeping. And that's why this is a foreshadow of what's about to come. However, you and I can still be encouraged of our faith in Christ because throughout our humanity and our failures in our humanity, we can still trust in Christ in his humanity. Because he woke up to do something about the storm. Even the disciples decided to continue to sleep. They decided to stay, to fail their master. They failed Christ to not do what Christ said. But when Christ woke up, it did show that he cared. And he did something about the storm. The disciples did have it rough in this situation to the point where they did think they were going to die. And this gets to my final point. Our response to unexpected chaos needs to be unwavering trust in Jesus. The disciples at this point, they did not acknowledge Jesus' divinity. At least in this story, they didn't. And if they have before, they didn't remember that in this moment. They didn't remember it in this story. Because you see in verse 40, as he says, and, he, and Jesus said to them, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? He didn't say, why do you have little faith? He said, no faith. Little faith would have been the disciples coming up to Jesus to say, you need to do something about the storm. But they had no faith. And you see that they have no faith because they said, teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? That word we are perishing is inclusive. If you were to ask me to take you to Walmart because you needed a ride to go to Walmart for whatever reason, and I drive recklessly in reckless traffic, you're going to ask me a question. Drew, don't you care that we could get into a crash? Don't you care that we could perish? Disciples are doing the same thing. They're thinking Jesus could perish with them. They didn't think that, that he was God in this moment, but they realized it afterward. But in this moment, they didn't know that Jesus could stop the storm. They didn't acknowledge that Jesus is God and he calms the storm. When Jesus gives a, especially with Jesus giving a word to the storm. And there's an interesting comparison when Jesus gave a word to the storm and also a word to the disciples. Because when you see at verse 39, it says, And he got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And I think there's another reason why you and I can conclude that this was God allowing an affliction to occur. Because if I sin, you rebuke me. If I teach heresy, you rebuke me. If you tell your children to take out the trash and they do it, you don't rebuke them. We see Jesus here saying that he rebukes the wind and the sea. 
He allowed an affliction to occur. He didn't cause the affliction, but he allowed it. And then, with a word, the wind and the sea becomes calm. Now, ironically, when we go to uh, uh, Jesus saying to the disciples, why do you still have no faith? Why are you so afraid? The disciples should have had peace. Jesus just took care of their problem. But they had more fear. They, they, they had more fear, and that was because they did not know and trust who Jesus truly was at this point, which easily tells you and me that we can claim to be a follower but not truly trust him. You and I can claim that we, 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 we follow Christ and that we have faith in him, but do we trust him when things go rough, when things get bad? I said I was going to mention him before, and David Garland, he mentions how um, in his commentary that um, the wind and the sea were symbolic, um, and there was a very common belief in, in this time where they thought the winds and the seas were uncontrollable. No god could control the wind and the seas. And then we see Jesus stepping up to the boat to say, hush, be still. And the wind and the sea calms down, which is why the reaction is so big when they respond in fear. Who is this? Even the wind, even the seas obey him. Who is this that even chaos becomes into order? Who is this that when there's complete troubles, it all gets better? That's why they respond in fear, because they didn't believe he could do that before. They didn't know he could do that, but he can in his sovereignty, he can control the chaos. He can allow chaos to happen and still not foil his plan in whatever it is. And when they ask the question, who is this? You and I can be reminded that this is God. And this is the same God who loves you and I and tells you and me to repent and to have faith in him because he died for us. This is the same God who loves you and me the same God who turns every chaotic situation, every chaotic storm, into order. Because again, through unexpected trials, personally, when we go out in the world, unexpected storms as a church, you and I can expect that the head of the church is in charge. The head of the church is in charge of the world. Nothing slips through his fingers, in the words of Tony Evans. He, he, the head of the church is in charge of his church. And you and I can take heart in that. We can have faith of him, in him in the midst of troubles and trials. So don't panic, because Jesus has it under control. Don't panic, because Christ is in control of all things. He can take care of any big problem. There's nothing that can stop God. There's nothing that can overpower him because he is power. And this is the same God that we serve, the same God who loves us. And we have to ask the question, if God be for us, who can be against us? We have a time of invitation, a time where we can come to him, the same God in repentance and faith, the same God to acknowledge when we've sinned, to acknowledge maybe we haven't been serving where we should, or um, we just don't know. And maybe it's a time where we need to pray for someone or for ourselves or someone who we do know is going through a very hard trial. 
this is the time to do so. We're going to have that now. God, I'm so grateful for your sovereignty that nothing slips through your fingers. I'm so grateful that you are in control and in charge of all things. You truly are good, and we're so grateful. Let this be a moment where we do repent of our sin, where we do repent where we didn't trust you in the midst of our trials, in the midst of when things went wrong. We're so grateful for your grace. We're so grateful that you do forgive when we repent. For your glory in Jesus' name, amen.